0: You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, assistant professor of epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time on Friday, August 7th. Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks?
1: Um, I don't have, uh, well, I might uh, eventually, depending on what questions come in, uh, I definitely want to take this opportunity to talk about some of these rapid tests and, and the federal regulations that are in, uh, inhibiting the, the introduction of them and uh, just how they uh, they can effectively be uh, akin to having a vaccine that was introduced tomorrow. And so hopefully I'll get questions about it. But if not, I'll probably stop in the middle and start talking about it. So happy to take questions.
0: Great. Thank you, Dr. Minna. Uh, first question. Can you hear me OK? Yes, yep. great. Awesome. Well, Dr. Mina, I'm curious. So what does it mean when we're seeing testing fall in a state and we're also seeing positivity rates fall in that state too? Is it, are we not getting a full picture of the virus if it's spreading or do things potentially look more positive than they are or is that not the case?
1: Um, so the question is if you see the numbers of tests being performed in a state go down and the positivity rate go down as well. Yes. Uh, that generally implies, uh, and and this comes with huge caveats, but that implies anyway that that the case numbers are actually falling, and so you're getting this happened in Massachusetts, for example, uh, where as cases start to come down, people begin to loosen up on in terms of their uh, the 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 craze to get tested, and so you end up getting fewer and fewer people getting tested, which isn't always a bad thing, uh, and, uh, and and and. This is really where we want to get. We want society to have such a low overall prevalence of disease and infections that people, uh, that we can actually, you know, in an ideal world, we would have no more infections and would be able to stop testing. Uh, Of course, that's, we're not getting there anytime soon. Uh, New Zealand was able to get there, although I presume they're still testing. So when they're both going down, it usually means that uh, the cases are truly going down. When testing is going up, and the rate of new infections and the proportion positive are going down, it's very difficult to tell if that's just because testing is going up uh, or because cases are actually going down. And we've been trying to work on uh, ways to, to sort of decipher that in in the research space now. Um, but uh, does that answer your question?
0: No, it, it definitely does. Um... As a follow-up, I wanted to ask, what is, and maybe this will get into what you were kind of hinting at, you wanted to talk about earlier, but what is the dream testing scenario for you for the US? Is it people getting regular tests often, regardless of symptoms, or what does that look like for
1: for us? Yeah, so I will just, (laughs) I'll take this time now. Uh, I'll try not to speak very long, so if you guys get sick of hearing me talk, just chime in and tell me to stop talking. the status right now, we have for this entire, the entirety of this epidemic, we keep, we keep trying to take diagnostic tests and put them into this and use them for public health surveillance. But diagnostic tests are, are limited. They're, they are necessarily limited. They have to be extremely high quality uh, in terms of uh, their precision and accuracy for what they're trying to get at. They need to be able to, um, they're usually run in diagnostic laboratories because of that. Uh, So that means they literally have to get bottlenecked and funneled through doorways (laughs) to to get into a lab, literally. Um, We're starting to see distributed um, types of tests like Quidel and Abbott now and and, uh, BD and a few others. And these are helping, but none of these are public. These aren't helping at the level of public health. They are helping to just create more diagnostic tools. Uh, but what I'm proposing as a way to use testing to our advantage is a way not to just keep diagnosing people. Because diagnosing people doesn't do much for a public health good to actually stop the outbreak in the same way that we know that uh, would anyone care if we could give you a vaccine that worked for two days? Would we be running to get it? No, we would understand that, it, that a vaccine that only works for two days is not a useful vaccine. Uh, we would want a vaccine that works for a year or ten years, and that would be a useful vaccine. And so we keep trying to use these diagnostic tools that just tell us about what's going on, you know, once every in somebody's life, once every couple of months when they maybe get tested, and it's doing nothing to stop transmission chains. Uh, and in fact, I would say that PCR, as the, as the, uh, using it as a diagnostic tool, not only tells us uh, offers very little for, for breaking transmission chains, but it actually is putting us down the wrong road. Because PCR remains positive long after somebody has been infected with the virus and transmitting the virus. It's why the CDC comes out and says, you don't necessarily need a negative result to come out of quarantine after you've been positive, just wait 10 days. Because if most people wait until they're actually negative on a PCR test, it could be weeks or months before they turn negative. But we recognize that they're not a danger to society after about 10 days, because their transmissible period is done, and they just have RNA that's residing in their their nasopharynx. In the same way that people's DNA is in their hair, if you find somebody's piece of hair, it doesn't mean the person is in front of you. It's just their piece of hair. That's the same thing that's happening here. And so what I think we need to do is change the target. We need to not use PCR positivity status as our public health metric, because what it means is that we're contact tracing millions of people who don't need to be contact traced because they were actually infectious weeks ago. We're also quarantining millions of Americans uh, for 10 or 14 days who, are no, who haven't been transmitting for weeks by the time they got their, their result. And this isn't even taking into account the fact that result times are so delayed. So what I would like to see happen as it is, to start using testing out of the diagnostic realm and as a true public health tool to break transmission chains. In the same way that we know that masks can serve to decrease transmission, I want to use tests to decrease transmission. And the way to do that is to use cheap tests that are highly accurate to detect somebody at the moment they're transmitting, but maybe don't, but they don't look accurate because we're comparing them against PCR positivity, which stays positive for so long after transmission. So I want these tests that that will tell somebody that they're accurate, uh, that they're transmitting at the time that they're transmitting, and people can act on it because they're getting immediate results and I want them to take it every single day or every other day. And these can exist. There can be one dollar a day tests. The government needs, we need a project warp speed for these tests. And the reason is we have put so much effort into vaccines and therapeutics and billions of dollars. We've put trillions of dollars into stimulus for the country. We have a workable solution today that if the federal government actually said we will put billions of dollars or a billion dollars into really pushing the technology for $1 paper strip tests that can be printed in the millions, uh, which they can be, and get, them, get a package of 50 in everybody, every American's hands uh, over the next month, or not even every American. It could just be in Texas and Arizona and Florida right now. Because those are the states that are seeding infections to, to other states. So really take all of this as a big public health um, umbrella approach. And if we can do that, if we can get a test that everyone wakes up, just like they put in their contact lenses, they, they take a test. They, uh, and if it turns positive, they stay home. And they take a test the next day. And they stay home until the test turns negative, or, or for some set number of days, maybe seven days. And, th- and that's it. That alone, if everyone's doing it, uh, or even just a majority of people are doing it, then it will stop the vast majority of transmission. And it will cause these outbreaks to disappear in a matter of weeks. We don't have to wait for a vaccine when we, we can essentially think of these as development of artificial herd immunity. We know that we don't have to get 100% vaccinated to stop transmission of this virus. We just need around 50 or 60% the same thing goes here. But because they are tests that are giving people information about themselves, the holdup is that they're, they're defined as diagnostic tests. And as diagnostic tests, if you're comparing them against PCR, they're going to look bad. And the FDA is not going to necessarily approve them for at-home use. What, what I'm calling for is that there is a national movement To get these no longer defined as a diagnostic test, but a public health tool in the same way that masks are public health tools, that checking somebody's fever is a public health tool, it's a screening mechanism for for breaking transmission chains. And if we can get it outside of going through the CMS pipeline that puts them into the FDA and they become uh, overseen, for example, by CDC, maybe CDC comes out with some certification program for the tests, to say, this is a good test, this is not a good test for this use. Uh, we, we could truly build that up and, and if the federal government would create a project warp speed surrounding this effort, we don't need a vaccine tomorrow. We could buy ourselves potentially years of time before we need a vaccine. For, for one of the recent stimulus, we could get uh, one of these tests in everybody's uh, hand every single day for months or a year or so. And, uh, and that would stop transmission. It doesn't need to be 100%. It just needs to be out to a lot of people. And so I, I, you know, there's regulatory reasons why these aren't out yet. And it's all surrounding just red tape. But we're allowing red tape in this archaic view of what defines Of we, we don't, in this country, have we have so defunded and, and underappreciated public health for so many years that we literally don't have a recognition. of of the fact that there could be a test whose main goal is public health and not clinical medicine. Everything is wrapped up in insurance reimbursements and FDA regulations as diagnostics. That we don't, there's just, it it takes a whole rethinking of what a test that somebody might use looks like and how it's defined. And in this case, I want it defined as a public health tool that a State Department of Public Health or the CDC can, uh, can push forward and say, this is our, this is just like a vaccine, how we're going to deal with this epidemic. And if we could do that, we could potentially have, we could have or, or greatly reduce, or maybe by 90 or, or 95% reduce transmission in this country in the next few weeks, if everyone could have one of these tests tomorrow. Of course, that's not at the moment possible, but it could be if the federal government treated this with the same urgency that they're treating a vaccine, which may or may not even work. I forget what the initial question was.
0: No, no, that that was great. Thanks thanks so much. It's been really interesting.
2: Next question. Very early on in the epidemic, the the Gates Foundation uh, was proposing to come out with a a system based on the Seattle flu study that would allow people to swab themselves at home. It's still a PCR test and um, you know they were they were wanting to to roll it out on a large scale, and then it just suddenly came to screeching halt. And um, my impression is that it's it's wrapped up in this FDA approval process. Do do you have any idea what's going on with that? And do you see something like that as a viable al- alternative, if, even though it's PCR based? Uh,
1: I don't see it as an alternative. All that would do is clog up our laboratories more. Mm. We started to have uh, millions of Americans taking using at home swabs that need to be sent into a laboratory uh, or any sort of centralized location it would completely we already have two week delays in some places for getting results back It would hamstring string the whole the whole di- diagnostic effort and um, and this is why we really need to figure out how to distribute these types of tests, get them out of uh, the laboratory, uh, and you know, keep the preserve the laboratory space and the laboratory environment for for true diagnostics. If somebody's at the doctor's office or the hospital because they are sick, they need a result back quickly, and we can't have uh, we we have to separate these two ideas. Now, if there was a if there was some new technology that came out to really be able to massively, you know, take in millions and millions and millions of samples into a centralized lab. That could work, but still, one of the best ways—the one of the—the f- the only reasons that this approach is really working that I'm suggesting is because it gives you real-time information, and and so that initial that initial um, effort to sort of have home swabs, which we're still pushing for for various reasons, but that was again just part of this overall um, thinking of trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, trying to trying to sort of get Co-op diagnostics for public health surveillance. And, and we have never been dealt, we've never dealt with such a, a dire situation diagnostically or, or testing-wise as we are currently, that we we just don't have the capacity. We can't build the capacity to do 100 million tests a day in our laboratories in the United States. And so uh, I do think though, you know, that was devastating to see that come crashing to a halt to, to your point though. And that was wrapped up in FDA. And it's just, you know, it frustrates me to no end when I talk to, I've talked to senators, I've talked to people close to the White House, I've talked to congressmen, I've talked to heads of states of many other countries, and everyone says, why aren't you doing this already? My answer is literally that it is illegal to to do this right now. I mean, it's insane that that this is something that could stop outbreaks uh, and, and epidemics as a public health tool and there is no clear path to legally introduce these tests without the companies making them getting shut down, uh, you know, because they're being viewed as a diagnostic. Um, and, and because they're being viewed as a diagnostic using fairly archaic um, metrics to what uh, is the approval metric to achieve, uh, it, it is really, uh, it's a problem. And, you know, it pains me. To say that we have a tool that the federal government could build, that companies alone could build if needed, but I don't think this should all fall on three-person companies or ten-person companies. Um, and uh, uh, but it's but it's illegal. You know, it's crazy. It's illegal to save lives right now. <laughs> it's and it's simplifying it a little bit, but that's pretty much the message.
2: Do you have a follow-up? I I, I do. Uh, so so when you're talking about it being Ill- illegal. Are you talking about this swab test, or are you talking about these other types of testes that, that you were that you were referring to earlier? And you said that you're still pushing for the swab test. I, in what application, the self swab test, in for what application?
1: Yeah, so the, the there are still reasons to do, until we get these rapid paper strip test, type of tests into everyone's home, we still need to figure out how to keep, keep people safe and have some semblance of public health testing. And so I do think at home testing, if we can do it, and it shouldn't be hard, you know, that's, it's already been approved by some. So the, the moment you say that at home testing that taking the swab is okay for one company, it should just be okay. You know, there, there's, there, there's, it's, it, I think there's been this confusion about the, the actual test in the lab And the swab collection. And as as soon as one person has said that it's okay to for people to swab at home, then everyone should should you know have uh, a clear pathway to get to use their test for people to swab at home. I think there's a real danger there. It needs to be sort of um, it would have to be controlled in the number of swabs that are able to be mailed out or something at any given time. But both of these at the moment, uh, I can't uh, you know in my capacity as a as a Know, running a uh, helping to run a, a laboratory at a hospital. I couldn't just mail out a bunch of swabs today and tell people, okay, you know, this is your ten swabs to use over the next two weeks. Mail them back to me, and we'll test them for you. Yeah. That would not be illegal right now under our current um, rules. And uh, and that is, you know, if that's a better way to get uh, to get tests out to disadvantaged people who can't necessarily drive to a drive-through, then we should be doing it. And, and there shouldn't be uh, the kind of red tape that exists. This has been the story throughout this whole epidemic. And it comes from, it initially came from a good place, which was this whole notion of an EUA approval process was designed to ensure that the, that the tests that were being used were accurate when the consequences of having a false diagnosis are very grave. So for something like Ebola, that makes a lot of sense. You don't want to miss a, a case of Ebola. And you don't want to tell somebody that they have Ebola when they don't. But with a virus like this that's now widespread, we need to start thinking of different approaches and the FDA alone can't be dealing with every EUA application. As is, people are just applying and they're not getting results back, they're not getting comments on their EUAs back from the FDA for months. So, you know, it's just holding things up and, um, and we just have to rethink the system at this point. The, the virus is widespread now. Get rid of the EUA. We've, we don't have EUAs for flu, for example. Um, allow different laboratories to just go forward, as long as they have the expertise to do it, to do it. Um, and, and still have some regulatory um, process. Right now, there, in some ways, there's no regulatory process in the labs, because at, at the moment, essentially, uh, you just have to submit your EUA application, and you can start testing people you don't get a, result, a response by your EOA application for potentially months. So in some ways it's deregulated anyway, um, but it's just creating a huge barrier. So that, that at-home thing is, um, uh, but they have come down and said that with, until you get your EOA approval, you can't send people kits to use at-home. And, you know, that's just, we know that the technology and tools work. So uh, we're just continuing to be, stuck in this regulatory landscape that was never designed for a public health emergency. We're not treating this like a, like a true public health emergency. And frankly, like a f- true national crisis. Uh, we're treating it as though it's just another day um, and w- of red tape and regulation. And I'm, I'm usually not against regulation in this way, but I think it's just gotten so extreme here. And it's truly been hindering every step of the way our ability to test our way out of this virus since February.
0: You all set?
2: I am, thank you so much. Next question.
3: Uh, hi, Michael, how are you doing? Uh, thanks for taking uh, questions on this. I, I wanted to um, uh, get a few more details about these, uh, these basic paper tests. So, um, what is the actual status of their development? I mean, are they? Uh, uh, are they you know, kind of proven in the lab, but no, no manufacturers have taken them up yet? Or are manufacturers ready to go? And it's a, just a, really literally just waiting for these approvals? Or what's the status of these? How soon could they be in people's homes? Uh,
1: yeah, so I'll answer that in two different ways. Um, uh, so the first, the, the status is these tests do exist um they are in clinical trials they uh, exist in in paper format i have uh i have some here at my house uh and um that that we were just testing in in the laboratory um and uh so they exist right now they could be built uh even a small company uh uh, could build a, a million of them uh this week and that's a small company And so so they actually exist, Um, but they, you know, I get this question a lot. What is the status? How good are they and everything? I actually, I, uh, and this isn't uh, any offense to the question or, or to you or anything. I'm tired of that question being asked because what I would like to be asked is, does the technology exist? The answer to that would be a clear yes. What should the federal government be doing to ensure that, that that there are just that they create a federal response to produce these um, you know the, the, the tests exist, but truly some of the companies that i 'm talking to are three person companies, and the fact that we are putting that we 're even talking about a, a product that could potentially change the course of this pandemic that we 're talking about a company that 's comprised of three people is ridiculous um, we should be, the, the government should be recognizing the potential for these tools as a core technology and should be enlisting the full might of the NIH in the same way that the NIH has the Vaccine Research Center. We need, uh, you know, and they should be pushing on the, the major manufacturers, whether it's diagnostic manufacturers or companies like 3M, who, and I know 3M is. Potentially working on it, but they got a measly five hundred thousand dollars from the government. That should have been a five billion dollar investment from the government to ensure that three m can produce these tests at scale and uh and so the question shouldn't be where are we at and what can we do? The question should be where can we be in three weeks if the government right now put two billion dollars into it and and that's what what I would like to answer and if and if you ask me that, I would say. If the government right now put a billion or two to billion dollars into um, even just getting out of any of the individual companies, but just bringing these companies together, bringing the best minds in the country uh, or the world together to sit in a room for a month and figure out the optimal test, get structural biologists, get whoever needs to be there to figure out how to make these tests as optimal as, po- as possible uh, and then just start producing them. And the reason why it's doable is because unlike a vaccine, this isn't a tough technology to build we're pretty much there we have workable workable tools but we could optimize them even more and start and get the cost per test down even more if it wasn't a three person company but it was a a massive company that has economy of scale you could maybe build these tests at a reagent cost of 50 cents a piece and or less i mean i, I think that they can get down to pennies in reality when we think of the true material cost and so uh, if they're being produced in the tens or hundreds of millions, then then everything changes, and um, you know. So I think that that's. But we're we're treating it as though this is just business as usual. We're going to let the free market reign. We're going to let capital, uh, sort of capitalistic uh, sort of pressures and forces work, and hopefully the um, first three or ten person company will will rise to the top. You know that's. It's really, uh, it's really insane when, when, when I think about it.
3: Um, how about the intermediate scenario of um, regulatory approval, but no government, you know, overt government support, not, not the billion dollars. How, how rapidly could these three people companies scale up and you know, without that support, how many tests could we have in a month?
1: Yep, I think these can be, these can be produced, um, they could start producing them with small companies and, and small manufacturing plants, they could start producing a million a week. Uh, if they go to slightly larger manufacturing plants, if the regulatory hurdles were completely gone and the buyers were there, which I think they would be, uh, they could find the manufacturing to go to 10 million a week. Um, and, and these are still without, without the, big, the big guns coming in and, and just and, and participating. And so, um, so these are truly scalable solutions.
3: And, and forgive me for a third question, but um, as far as uptake on the public side, would you need uh, major public health figures pushing these as a pushing this as a viable strategy?
1: I think a lot of people. I think even I think with no public health, we would want public health oversight, like the CDC, to give a stamp of approval on different companies as they come out and uh, in sort of a regulatory s- framework like the FDA has, but we would want it to be focused on uh, metrics that reflect public health use and not um, not diagnostic use. So if we could go in that direction, I don't think we would even, in this country, I think we would have such a m- major demand that probably half of the country would probably, especially if state public health uh, you know states appropriated some funds for them to subsidize them, uh, I think we would have huge, uh, uh, a demand for them, which would push. We don't have to have a hundred percent. Again, the moment we can get away from thinking about this as a individual level response and test uh, to thinking about a way it as a mechanism to suppress the overall incidence of virus in the population, uh, then it becomes, we, we have, we can really relax uh, what these tests need to do. If, if they do nothing more than stop the superspreading events, then that would uh, reduce uh, transmission potentially by 70%. You know, we could stop the 20% of events that are superspreaders. We would stop 80% or so of, of infections potentially. That's what some of the models show. And, um, and so we don't need everyone to take these up. If we had 50% of the people in a given community using these on a daily or every other day basis, we would massively drop transmission across the population. Uh, And so uh, I think the demand would be there. I think if the federal government or state governments jumped in and subsidized it made sure that every American had uh, uh, enough to to use one every day or two uh, at 50 cents or dollar a piece, then that would be even
3: better. Thank you very much.
0: Next question. Hey, thanks for taking my question. You and a lot of other experts have really sort of been pushing for this idea of rapid tests for a few weeks now. And I'm wondering if on the regulatory side, if you've seen any progress being made, if you feel like the FDA might bend, like how how do you sort of see this playing out and has anything sort of changed so far? Uh,
1: So there's been a, a lot of movement, I would say. I think that there's a groundswell of support. People are seeing that, frankly, we have no other, there aren't you know, I don't think of this as a last ditch effort. I think of this as a very reasonable, simple effort. Uh, and one that is just so, it's, it's dead simple. You know, it just makes sense. And so I think that that is uh, leading to uh, a groundswell of support at the federal level. Um, and a lot of senators have, um, have called me up and signed on and said, how can I help? Who can I talk to? Um, governors. I just had I hosted a a pretty large roundtable meeting just yesterday with the mayors of some of America's major um, cities as well as leading scientists on this issue and uh, with all of this external support that we're seeing it's clear that 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 people are catching on. The problem is I, I would say that we have seen very little movement Overall, we had a meeting with CMS the other day, and, and I would say that the meeting was pretty, uh, it did not evoke a sense of urgency at the end. Uh, it ended, uh, as many meetings do, with, OK, well, great to, great to talk to you. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I think, um, and FDA has shown little willingness or interest to move, in, and I can't tell. I think what's happening is FDA truly doesn't, I want to get this out of FDA's Domain altogether. They are not an, an entity that is um, charged even with, uh, with evaluating public health tools. They're charged with evaluating diagnostic tools. So, until we can get this redesignated as a public health tool, um, I, in some ways I've been a little bit unfair to the FDA because I'm asking them to, uh, to change their view when, uh, you know, it's like asking a, a physician. To, take the, to, to treat patients with the mindset of the public health alone. And this is a constant tension that exists in medicine and public health. Uh, and it's not always, uh, they're not always completely in line. And so I think where we need to start is we need to have, um, you know, I think, frankly, it needs to be something at the CMS level, where CMS decides that there is a different pathway that these can be not under CMS and CLIA regulations. And then they don't have to go to FDA. Uh, the other option, which I think really needs to happen, is Jared Kushner and 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 uh, the White House administration uh, are aware of these, and I think that uh, uh, that, that that it needs to be a, a potentially a, a process that's promoted at that level uh, to to really change the course of, of this epidemic. And um, but otherwise, I think we're we're just kind of stuck in this limbo where there's nobody really feels. Um, that this is their problem, that these tests fall under their jurisdiction. And that's what's um, just uh, infuriating.
0: Do you have any follow-up questions? Uh, yeah, so one more is how much of sort of the the unwillingness to, to budge do you think might come from what we saw with antibody tests a few months ago when they were sort of flooded with the market and there were accuracy concerns? Do you think that sort of plays into it at all? Or sort of ha- how does that relate to the situation?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. I think the FDA initially was so stringent that es- essentially um, we had no testing for months and it was a disaster. Uh, it remains a disaster, uh, relatively speaking. But, but it was a true disaster in February and March in terms of uh, just no testing, essentially. So then they kind of swung the pendulum uh, and uh, approved and allowed all of these horrible tests to come through in the antibody space, that, uh, you know, that they were just giving wrong results and um, throwing off public health metrics. And the difference there is that they were also, because they're antibody tests, antibody tests are extraordinarily important. We should be scaling them up as well. Uh, but they are not tests that are necessarily going to be uh, actively used to suppress an ongoing outbreak. They're, they're good tests to use for public health monitoring, forecasts where the virus might go, things like that. Uh, and so I think when FDA sort of released those and somewhat in response to the early blunders, they said, OK, we're going to let these things go quickly. And uh, and that was th- that was terrible. I mean, it just, I, I don't need to go into detail. But I think what's happening now is, as you mentioned, a response in large part to those continued blunders um where uh where now they're back and they're saying oh the last time we allowed rapid tests to go forward they were terrible and uh and it was a disaster and so now uh what we're saying is that there's a different utility of these they wouldn't be as much of a disaster we would still hold them to high standards for public health use and uh, uh but i do think that that there is some. Um, uh, some memory of, of that experience is certainly lingering and I can't imagine it's not affecting their decision-making process.
0: Thank you, that, that was helpful. Great, uh, next question. Hi, thanks Dr. Renner for uh, doing this call. Um, I'm wondering if you could just speak about what you think uh, is the utility of using antigen testing inside of long-term care facilities. And uh, on the flip side, any uh, shortcomings or even drawbacks of of using those kinds of tests in that setting.
1: Yeah, I think that they, if we can use them every day, I think that they are an incredible boon. And the important thing to recognize here is I'm not saying we should get rid of anything else that's already happening. I'm just saying we have another very strong layer of uh, detection to know who is or is not a risk of bringing a virus into a place like a nursing home, into a place like a school, and in so doing, uh, dropping uh, potential community level transmission at the same time. And uh, and so I think that these, if we can get every single staff member to have a, a, in a nursing home to be using one of these every day before they enter, it will at least do it an immense job at cutting out Uh, potential avenues and sources of new exposures and entries of this virus into these facilities. Um, I would not say and and a lot of people get confused and they say you know well if you're gonna do that how can you ensure that everyone's it's gonna work perfect. It's not gonna work perfect but uh, we have to look at what we are doing now. I'm not saying to change anything else that we're doing currently but we have to look at what is happening today which is nothing. We essentially have no public health surveillance that's actually useful to stop transmission chains. My best estimate on what the sensitivity of our current surveillance system of testing, which is costing millions of dollars and and is just clogging up diagnostic testing, we probably catch in this country less than 3% of people in time to make a difference in their uh, their transmission patterns. Less than 3% is our current sensitivity and so uh, you know, anything at this point is going to be hugely beneficial. And I'm suggesting that we uh, just change it. I'm not suggesting that these will be 100%. But compared to 3%, and I could talk about the math if anyone's interested because it's, it's not hyperbole, uh, you know, less than 3%, uh, if we can bring that up to 50%, that would be a huge gain for us. And that alone could serve to stop the outbreaks that are happening in Texas and Florida, California. Uh, but at the moment, a three percent sensitivity with PCR to catch people when they're infectious is not going to, uh, is not going to cut it for any purpose.
0: Do you have a follow up? Yeah, actually, let me uh, follow up with one thing. So then do you see these as potentially uh, per the point you were making about? stopping transmission chains? I mean, do you you think these tests would be valuable uh, to help do that? Or or is it really uh, more, uh, I guess, is it more valuable in in another purpose?
1: No, I think that these would be extremely valuable to stop transmission chains. These rapid tests will, uh, they will detect people when they're infectious on the day they turn infectious. And so it will cut out. That person will not go and walk around for five days as an infected person. Uh, even if it doesn't capture everyone, it will do a whole lot more than the current 3%. Uh, and um, so yes, I think that these, this is, I don't see another option. And I have, with all the criticism that uh, this gets, I still haven't, uh, it also gets a lot of support, probably more support than it's getting criticism. Uh, I haven't seen a better option put out there, frankly. Um, this, these will, uh, there's, there, I don't see an avenue where these will not help to stop transmission chains. Um, and I don't see another option on the table for us.
0: Are you all set? Yep, I'm good. Thank you. Great. Next question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Um, Just wanted you to talk a little bit, if you would, about the Ohio governor and and what happened with his testing positive and then negative. What's, talk about it in the context of the flaws of these
1: tests, if you would. Sure, yeah, these tests will, uh, this is not, um, uh, laboratory-based diagnostics, uh, as well as these rapid diagnostics uh, are never 100%. We know that this is not, you know, unfortunately, the fact that this is making headlines is, uh, it just shows how sensationalized this has all been. Um, and uh, this is a very common problem. Uh, not even a, co- it's a very common uh, effect of testing people, especially when we get into testing people a lot when they have low, what we call pretest probability of being infected you run into the, um, to the issue of having potential false positives. This is the same with HIV. Uh, this is not a big problem, though, overall, and I'll get to that. But with HIV, right now, uh, when you have a low prevalence of HIV, meaning that in general, screening pregnant women, we screen them for HIV, uh, many of them have a very low pretest probability for uh, being infected. And uh, as many as half in, in a place like Massachusetts, for example, of the positive screens that we get are false positive. So, but there's a very simple solution. And I hope that nobody uh, on here decides to put that as, as the title of their story, that Harvard professor says half have, have are false positive. Um, that's not what I'm getting at here. Uh, what I'm getting at is this is common and we have a very simple solution. And that's that we have an immediate reflex to a confirmatory test. And we have what we call two different types of tests that are orthogonal. And what I mean by that is you have one test uh, that looks for one type of material and, and a different, for example, one piece of the virus and another test that looks for a different piece of the virus. And that can be used as confirmatory. And we do this all the time in laboratory diagnostics, all the time. This is a very common theme. And what happened with the governor is the system frankly, worked as it should have. you know, And it would have been quicker and wouldn't have been any issue if the orthogonal test, the the confirmatory test, was available right then and there. But it wasn't in his case, and it's not because we don't have wide-scale testing available uh, every day for everyone at this point in time. But what happened was exactly what we would expect to happen. Was he got a, a false positive? And uh, sure, it's, it, it threw off some of his plans. And because he's a governor going to visit uh, Trump, uh, it made the news. But at the end of the day, it just caused him a few hours of, of annoyance. Uh, and, uh, and, and he got his confirmatory test, and it came back uh, negative. And uh, you know, that's a whole lot better than if we weren't testing him at all. And he was positive, And he went and infected uh, you know, a lot of people. And so, um, so this is a common theme. And what my solution for these rapid tests would be is that uh, if, the, if the feds or, or other people are producing, if it, with every box of 50 tests that somebody buys for 40 or 50 bucks, uh, you get a test that's going to last you two months, or you get a box of tests that will last you two months. And with every set of 50, uh, you have five additional tests that are orthogonal, that are also a dollar piece to make. And so, this is a very there's very simple solutions uh, to these issues that are just aren't being discussed because, frankly, you know most people who are discussing these problems are not laboratory medicine doctors who do this and and the whole I would say you know and this isn't a knock on anyone on this call but I'll just be very frank, um, you know the whole um, it's the media, it's scientists, it's everyone have generally allowed. Everyone to have similar levels of voices, and so we have all of these people who are complaining about things who don't normally deal with infectious disease diagnostics. But if you talk to infectious disease diagnostic physicians, they'll say this is a common problem, not not to worry. In the same way that immunology, if you really talk to good immunologists, you know what they're talking about. They'll say waning antibodies aren't unexpected. Um, and so I just think uh, you know the fact that this made headlines yesterday is is beyond frustrated to me, because the system ended up working as it should, and, it, and instead what it did was it, it is a knock, again, against a rapid tests that could be life-saving. But at the end of the day, we saw that it worked well, and okay, so the governor didn't fly to see Trump. Uh, so be it. He, you know, the, the alternative of doing no testing on him uh, if the rapid test wasn't available and he was infected could have been much worse. I think we always have to keep that in mind.
0: Do
2: you have a follow-up? I guess that's it. Thanks so much. Sure. Sorry about my outburst there. Uh, Next question. Um. Yes. Thank you. This has been fascinating. So, um, Michael, we we talked about the antigen tests that are being shipped out to nursing homes by CMS, which you know can be get results on site in 15 minutes. Is your sense that that alone won't get us there? Or, or is it a similar problem with respect to the technology? And then I have a, a quick follow-up question.
1: Yeah, so, so they are being um, rolled out. These antigen tests that are being rolled out won't be enough to, to test everyone every day, for example. Uh, there's been a lot of news uh, and a lot of discussion about these antigen tests being introduced, and including the PAC, uh, the, the sixth governor PAC, uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, led by Maryland um, to uh, purchase 3 million tests collectively, 500,000 per state. Um, these are still fairly expensive and low throughput. Uh, not low throughput, but, but they still, each test still needs to go through a machine. And so you can't, uh, you know, and many of these machines are hundreds or thousands of dollars. And so the tests that are being approved and used today are not quite the same tests that I'm, that I'm referring to. Uh, they are, uh, I put them in two different camps. One of them, uh, I put these sort of rapid tests into, into two uh, bins. Uh, I would say that the, the tests that have been, that are being deployed now are like the Nespresso machine models. These are, these are uh, um, tests that require instrumentation. They require, a, a, and they're kind of like deluxe Nespresso machines. There'll be a, a, a big startup cost to get it going. Uh, and then each individual test will be expensive. And so uh, you know, relative to what I really want are the instant coffee versions, where a cup of coffee using instant coffee is pennies versus a dollar for, uh, you know, and, and just scale those appropriately. Uh, I want a $1 thing versus a $20 thing per test. And, uh, and the other bit is that the antigen tests that are being distributed to all the nursing homes, they're just not going to, because they're more highly manufactured, they will have a difficult time Uh, getting the scale to where it really needs to be to make an impact on a population level. For the nursing homes that can get them and get enough tests in, so that they can test sort of all the staff members before they come in each day, it will be, you know, it will be game changing for, for that nursing home. So I am not at all knocking that effort. I think it's the, it is what we need to be doing right now. Until we get this sort of instant coffee version or even in, in addition to when we get this instant coffee version cheap point of care at home test for everyone. We need to be trying as much as we can to focus the testing where it's going to be most effective at, at saving people's lives and that would be nursing homes in this case and um, And these are very good solutions, they will go a long way to stopping transmission if a nursing home is, is asking every staff member to test uh, themselves, even if it's not every day. If it's every other day, then you know, that's like, it's like wearing seat belts. Uh, if, you, if you wear your seatbelt most of the time, uh, then most of the time you'll have some added protection. But you know, not wearing it uh, one day doesn't mean that uh, all the days you do wear it don't count. And it's, it's kind of similar here that this is a risk mitigation strategy, and, and it, this is an important one that you're
3: asking about.
2: Great, thank you, and then just a quick follow-up question. The instant coffee tests that you're describing, which I love, um, what are they testing for specifically, and, and do you feel comfortable naming, or where would we go to find out what companies are currently working on this?
1: Yeah, so these are similar, they're very similar to the tests that, um, that are already uh, out there. The, uh, the difference is the tests that are out there like Quidel and BD, uh, and they, they have the reader, so they have the instrument, and espresso machine, if you will, And and that allows it to be uh, to have a better detection signal because it actually you're not reading it with the the naked eye you have a little instrument that's reading it. Um, So the companies that are trying to so the the other effort is to to make them either get the instrument so that it's twenty dollars and every household can have an instrument. Uh, And there are companies that are trying to you know I don't I think twenty dollars would be asking you know won't get there. Um, and it will still be limited. You can't make 100 million of those instruments in in a short amount of time uh, to get one in each household. So the companies that are making sort of the instant coffee version uh, are companies like Sherlock Biosciences. They're they're developing one. Uh, E25 Bio here. Uh, these are just the, these are Boston-based companies. There's some others. Uh, E25 Bio is building one, and uh, they are actually in clinical trials now. So they seem to be. Pushing forward, but again, they're a three person company. Uh, You know, it's, and so we need to really either do something and, uh, you know, to to get it out of their hands or or combine them with NIH or something. And then the other one is 3M. Uh, 3M is actually a major company, as you know, and and they are uh, working on a test with um, Hadley Sykes uh, at MIT. And uh, I, I know little about that, but my expectation, knowing Hadley's work and knowing the quality that 3M and the scale and scope that 3M brings to the table, is this might be a game-changing solution. It won't fit all the boxes that the FDA wants for a diagnostic test, unfortunately. So 3M might—I I don't know—they might come out with a product that will be game-changing that they won't be able to use in the United States. Uh, and you know, my guess is—or it's not even a guess—that the product could exist right now. And, it's, and a lot of people are wasting time trying to figure out how in the heck are they going to get instant coffee to be as good as an espresso while keeping the price uh, reasonable for every American use every day and while, uh, you know, while still trying to meet all the boxes. And it's just, they're, diff- they're different things. And so uh, until the regulatory landscape changes though, these companies have no reason to try to bring a product to market Uh, if it's not going to fulfill what the FDA is asking for and so there a lot of them are just kind of sitting on it They're trying to spend more time and more money to better and better optimize the tests, which might take months uh, so that they can meet the FDA approval and my fear is that what will come out of it at the end of those months is a test that does meet FDA approval, but that's too expensive and too complicated to scale and to use for everyone and so uh, in some ways the FDA, the the current landscape is bottlenecking these companies that could have a cheap test today, uh, into producing a more expensive Nespresso machine when, you know, because they can't actually legally use the, the instant coffee. So those are three companies, um, and, uh, again, I would just push to say that, uh, that this shouldn't be being driven by any one of these three companies. They either all need to be working together with the NIH with with the federal government to um, create a federal response to produce these. Thank you. And I also, I just want to be very clear in case, because I've heard uh, as as, as I've become more vocal about this, there are a lot of people think that I have, um, because I'm at Harvard, that I have um, ties to any of these companies. I have no financial ties or any other connection uh, to any of these companies. I'm truly just basing this on science.
2: Thanks.
0: Uh, Next question. Thanks so much for taking my question. It kind of goes back to a previous one with the federal response and regulations and it might actually be a clarification of something you were just talking about here. But I saw the FDA recently posted a new template for these companies to apply for EUAs. Um, for these rapid at-home tests. Does this at all loosen any of the red tape you mentioned or not really because they're still being treated as a diagnostic? I'm just trying to make sense of what this FDA announcement means for the general population and our ability to, you know, go to CVS and buy a test.
1: Yeah, so um, I was uh, initially excited and then uh, taken aback by it. Uh, Essentially, it was one step forward in that the FDA came out and said, uh, we are providing you with a template, and we've, we've heard your cries. We, we want to open a pathway to getting rapid at-home, over-the-counter tests to become available. And so that was the step forward, that they actually put the idea out there or they put the template out there to suggest how, how it might work. When you then go and read what they have in the template in terms of the metrics they will be looking for, pretty much what they have done is taken five steps backwards. Uh, towards the use of these as a public health tool. And that's because there's two major criteria. They are still asking for it to be 90% as sensitive as PCR-based diagnostics, which I just, you know, as I first said when, when we started this conversation, we have to change this message. We have to get the point across, even to scientists and the FDA and the CDC aren't completely aware of this issue, which is that we can't expect an antigen test to meet that criteria because most PCR positive results in much of this country are, are representing positive uh, samples that uh, uh, RNA positive samples with no live virus in them anymore, and so the requirement of ninety percent sensitivity against PCR doesn't um, doesn't add up. It, there's there's it needs to be a different metric. We need to say ninety percent sensitivity to detect people when they're transmissible. What I would like to do though is get out of all of that and say uh, this is a public health tool and, and heck for public health, if it means we could even just catch 50% of people that are transmissible, we would immediately drop uh, incidents across the whole population and that makes everyone safer. So the requirement for this 90% sensitivity was one knock on it. The other big one was they said, we, anticip- we expect that any test that is used by anyone that, that the test will come with some mechanism to report to the departments of public health the result of that test, negative or positive. So that immediately takes away, imagine if, imagine how much a, a pregnancy test would cost if it had to be connected to the Department of Health. You know, It'd have to come with a Wi-Fi signal and all this stuff, and it would have to be in the Nespresso machine model. So you can't have a paper strip test and still um, have the expectation that there's going to be um, some direct way for it to connect to the Department of Health. It's essentially asking these diagnostic companies, which are already small and and overstretched, to become software companies as well. So maybe some third parties can get involved and collaborate, but it adds months to the effort of getting these things out, and we need them today. It's a tool that can stop infections today. It would be like saying we can't use the vaccines unless the vaccines had a little code on them that could ensure that uh, we know exactly who's getting vaccinated when, you know, and uh, maybe that will happen because we'll have healthcare administrators or healthcare personnel administering the vaccine, so it's a little different, but we wouldn't hold up the vaccine program because of that, and we shouldn't be holding up these tests because of that. And
0: then the second question here. I don't, I don't mean to ask you to speculate, but I, I, you've been calling for these rapid at-home tests since, I mean, some of these calls back in early April. Are we any closer, is this one step closer? Do you anticipate we'll be seeing them anytime soon, or, or is a vaccine gonna be before these are even available?
1: I, I am hopeful that the groundswell of support that we've seen from people who have federal um, voices in the Senate uh, in, um, and that we're getting conversations with the NIH and the FDA and CMS and, uh, well, actually not the FDA, uh, unfortunately, CMS and the White House and, um, Congress and it, uh, we are, we are making some headway and having these conversations. And I think it just takes explanation. And I would appeal to the media who is on, who are on this call. Um, you know, and this, I take some responsibility for this because one of the first ways that I started talking about this was calling them low sensitivity. I even called them crappy tests. <laughs> um, uh, and that unfortunately got picked up. But I've changed the way that I've decided that this, this needs to, there, there needs to be a different way to call these. These are not, and this isn't just me changing my, my just, you know, it, these are not necessarily low sensitivity. They're low analytical sensitivity. Compared to PCR RNA, but these are high sensitivity. You could call them more accurate tests for knowing when somebody is infectious. And I would just say, you know, it doesn't make as good headlines as saying Harvard professor calls for crappy tests to save the world or whatever. But um, but it does change the narrative. And I think that if we can start calling these high sensitivity accuracy to detect transmissible people or to detect highly transmissible people tests that's something that politicians can get behind and really push and and it's it's the you know you you all have the the loudest voices in the country and the world um, you know short of a few individuals and um, and if that type of mindset and labeling of these can start to that message can start getting across that these are public health tools They are accurate tools and powerful tools to detect people who are transmitting, and they will break transmission chains. Uh, And we forget about how well they work as diagnostic purposes because they are different things. Then all of a sudden, they become very powerful, and the public message really can change around them.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. I can take one more uh, more question.
2: Thank you. Um, Final question. Thanks so much. Just a quick follow-up on all this. So are any other countries um, moving forward with this and and finding success?
1: Um, So the idea is fairly new in terms of uh, using these daily for everyone to as a public health metric. But um, in the last couple of months, uh, yes, uh, there have been, uh, I think Senegal is starting to trial them. Uh, I've been personally talking with the heads of numerous countries um, uh, in different parts of the world to essentially um, bring the companies together that that can produce them to have them start to be rolled out in other countries. And um, I would love for them to be rolled out in the United States. They're being developed and invented in the United States. Um, The reason that other countries aren't quite there yet is um, uh, there is some reliance in some ways on the companies that are producing them in the US to uh, the companies that are producing them in the U.S. don't currently have, like, a huge uh, incentive to go to market with them um, at the moment, just because the, the F, they're usually looking at the U.S. market. As things are progressing, there is a lot of discussion at this point about how to roll these out uh, in other countries, and there's been a tremendous um, uh, interest from the heads of states of, of other countries that I've spoken with, as, as high as they go. And... Um, And so I do believe that we should expect to see some of these companies start to be manufacturing them to be exported um, pretty soon. And you know that's uh, you know other countries. I was just talking to somebody on the other side of the world. um, I won't say the country, but you know just laughing at at, um, how uh, how how complicated the U.S. system has gotten. That we can't find our way around this problem. And uh, and it's again it's because we've never we've Undervalued public health for so long uh, that we truly don't have a language even at the federal, at the regulatory level to know where these where these tools for public health fit. Uh, there is no regulatory body surrounding public health biological tools like this, and um, and so other countries are kind of you know wondering what the heck we're doing over here uh, not getting our act together to use these things and, and they're saying, okay, well, we'll take them. And I think that's what, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not involved day to day with it, but I'm putting them all in touch with, with the companies to hopefully get them manufactured and sent over. A quick follow-up, I'm here in Minnesota, so 3M is here, so we've written about what they're doing, but, um, are there particular, um, countries that have, um, signaled a willingness to kind of put some dollars towards it, towards like a, a, a government-backed program? Oh yeah, um, I, I won't, uh, I don't feel at liberty to say what they are at the moment, um, but yes, uh, you know, I can truthfully say that there are heads of states that are very, very interested and I'm on the phone with them every couple of days right now to help figure out what the plan will be, what kind of pilot uh, it looks like, if they roll out a few million of these tests in a in a community to watch um, community transmission plummet, uh, you know. So so we've been discussing how to uh, get it going, and and I'm hopeful actually that uh, some of the countries that have the money to really pay um, the full price for them uh versus some you know versus some very poor countries which might not have the ability to to pay millions of dollars for millions of tests um that they will actually serve to uh if they if they do go ahead and, and purchase them that it will actually infuse some cash into these companies and maybe the companies can go from three people to to 30 people or something and really start to make headway um, so uh, uh but yes the short answer is there are major countries that are interested
0: Okay Dr. Minna, I think that's our last question. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us?
1: Um, no I, I i don't i I hope that the message gets across I, I I think the last the last comment is really just these are our hope we don't have a vaccine tomorrow we don't have anything but shutting down the economy tomorrow and keeping schools closed. This can work uh, and it, and I just hope that it gets across to the people who it needs to get across to and, and the media is a good conduit to doing that. Um, this is a tool that tomorrow could start to go into production and within a few weeks time could start to make, to change the whole course of outbreaks in major cities in America. And, and uh, in so doing, make all of, of the United States safer. We're, uh, you know, in Massachusetts, we have fairly low incidence uh, but we can't realistically open up schools and colleges the way we would want to, because there are cases burning and outbreaks burning across the country. We're a connected country, and we need to figure out how to get these outbreaks under control, and this is, this is a solution. And, um, and the power is, we have the power to actually turn it into the solution. Vaccines, we can't speed up very much. Therapeutics, we can't speed up very much. This is something we could actually do at warp speed and make it happen. And, um, you know, I I just, I I want to really push that, um, that message.
0: This concludes the August 7th press conference.